Uh, today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. If you want to slowly start working there, it's by way of introduction, it's that natural time of year where people tend to start assessing whatever they've done for the past 12 months. I can't tell you why that is. It's somewhat of an imaginary line. There's really nothing due on January 1st. Uh, there's nothing that comes up. Taxes aren't even due until April, and that's for all of last year's income, and those things don't come till later, and yet we find ourselves at the end of, of every year starting to reevaluate our priorities, reevaluate the things that we have done throughout the year. Uh, we start to check those boxes of the New Year's resolutions that we created from the previous January, so that would be January 1 of 2021, maybe you made some New Year's resolutions. Hopefully you checked more boxes than I did. Uh, most of the time we don't, and that's just a lot of people set big lofty goals every year. But when it comes around to December, and we come to the time of celebrating Christ's birth, often we can get sidetracked with, with those, uh, those goals that we had set. Oftentimes we start to think about those, and this is a time of year for great depression for a lot of people. Uh, they come to the end of the year and they realize, I haven't done the things that I wanted to do, or maybe I did things and I didn't do them well enough, I haven't met my goals, and, and there's this great struggle and anxiety that comes around a time of the year that should be a time of joy and celebration. On the flip side of that coin, others are so excited about the things that they've accomplished. They've hit every checkbox that they wanted for the year, and now they're going to finish off the year in, in grand feast and celebration with family. And that would be their source of joy. That would be their source of excitement and contentment would be what has been accomplished throughout the year and as they would stroll into next year uh, celebrating those things. This December can be somewhat of a victory lap if you've, if you've done well this year. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about his goal and his aim in a very open and frank letter. It has been this far. He uses a lot of personal analogy in Philippians chapter 3, I find this to be a very personal appeal from Paul and his goal. And his goal is simply this. This is what we're going to see throughout this. His goal is just to know Christ. It's not to understand more about the Old Testament. It's not to memorize the books of the Bible. It's not to know more doctrine and theology, to memorize more hymns. His simple aim is to know Christ. It's not a, just an educational knowledge He's talking about a, a deep personal experience in relationship with Christ. That's the sort of communion he wants to have with Christ. And, and he wants to know him in a personal way. And he's willing to sacrifice all other things, all the other goals that he may have had for ministry, all the places he wanted to go, all the things he wanted to do prior to Christ and now after Christ are all controlled by this desire for him to know Christ. And to know him personally. I think oftentimes as we consider our goals for next year, very rarely do we consider how those goals might increase our relationship with Jesus Christ. How are our goals for this year or our reflection of last year going to be a reflection of our relationship with Christ, of our value of that relationship, and our interest in that relationship? Even coming here today, when you came here 
here today, what was your end goal? What was your end aim? It's Sunday morning, so at 10 a.m., we need to put the check in the box that we've come here to Cornerstone. We sang the songs, we said the prayers, we listened to a sermon, and now we would go home, but to what gain? To what benefit? Well, for Paul, it was simple. Let's read, and starting in verse 1, it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Paul starts us off, and as he starts off with a simple command, he tells the brethren, he's speaking to the believers in the church in Philippi, that they are to rejoice in the Lord. It's a fairly simple command. He's repeated it multiple times in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verse 18, he rejoiced when Christ is preached by any means. In 126, the Philippians rejoiced in Christ's work through Paul. In chapter 2, verse 16, he wanted the Philippians, or he wanted to personally rejoice in the Philippians' faithfulness to Christ. In verse 17, Paul rejoiced in the sacrifice of himself for them. In verse 18, the Philippians rejoiced in witnessing Paul's sacrifice for them. In 228, they're going to rejoice to see Timothy. And now, here in chapter 3 is a reminder, and we know it won't be the final reminder in the book, but in a final reminder in rejoicing in the Lord. Paul is reminding them where their joy is to be found. It's in the Savior Jesus Christ. There's no other place that he points to. It's quite simple. Rejoice in the Lord and in your relationship with Him. It's remembering the things that Christ has done for you, which he's going to recount later, and that Christ would provide the provision of righteousness for them, a provision they could never provide for themselves. And in that, he would provide them a Holy Spirit, eternal life, and a promise of eternal communion with him. These things, he says, were no trouble for him to continue to write as he would continued to remind them of their source of joy. But he also said it is safe for them. In a sense... 
this continual reminder of your joy in Christ is nothing that should be easily sloughed aside. Yet it's so often that when we get to this time of the year and we sing the songs that come of Christmas and remind us of Christ, we're just repeating what we sang last year. In a sense, they're not deepening our relationship with Christ. And in this sense, he's telling them that this is a safe reminder to continually return to this very thought. What's your source of joy? This last year, if you're like me, your source of joy has been tempted considerably and constantly. It's been tempted by everything you might read in the news. It's been tempted by a source of enjoyment even at work. Uh, For some of you, this football season has not been a very good source of joy. And as we would consider the things that would bring us joy, this idea here isn't just that we would find joy because of our circumstances. You see, the joy in the Lord isn't dependent on where you currently find yourself in circumstances in life. It's not dependent on on where your job is right now. It's not dependent on where your checkboxes are for your, uh, your your yearly goals. It's not dependent on the status of relationships, of friendships, where your house is, what condition your car is in, the clothing that you might want to have, the places you may have wanted to go this year that you didn't get to go. If that's the source of your joy and the things that you would consider that would bring you the most happiness, then you are setting yourself up really for failure over and over again. If you're like me, even when you would find short-term joy in those things, it's very short-lived. It comes for a season, it, it grows, and like a flower, it blossoms, and it's beautiful in its time, and then it fades, and it goes away, and it's no longer there. His reminder to them constantly throughout this book is that Christ provides eternal joy. Christ provides them and eternal comfort. But it doesn't come without risk, and he quickly reminds them in verse 2 that there are people out there who would come to steal their joy. He reminds them to rejoice in the Lord. He reminds them that that should be a constant state of reflection for them. And out of that repetition, now he's going to warn them Beware of the dogs, the evildoers. Beware of the mutilation. Well, simply, he's referring mostly to the Judaizers who at the time uh, were teaching that in order to be saved, in order to have salvation, in order to be eternally in heaven with God the Father, that salvation came through circumcision and strict obedience to the law. In fact, they wholesaled the gospel free of grace and replaced it with a system of works to the point where he would refer to it as just mutilation. This wasn't just the circumcision of the Old Testament. This was something that had a spiritual value tied to it. 
And in that sense, he referred to them as evil workers who would bring upon just a mutilation of the body. And in anything that you would do, if done outside of faith in Christ, it's of no profit. That's simply the point he's trying to make here. That those who would have you do works and do things to merit salvation, to create your own joy, why those things would simply be a mutilation to your own body. In fact, Paul later wishes that they would just mutilate themselves because it's such an evil practice. Remember that mutilation in the Old Testament was a way of appealing to a god. Remember, they do this in the prophets of Baal when they go to call him upon Baal to light their... uh, to light their their offering there, that they cut themselves, remember, and they danced about the fire that he he might remember them. In this sense, Paul's warning them of such behavior, that it's not necessary and it's not true belief. And he points to true belief in verse 3. For we're the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So what are they to do? They're to find their joy in the Lord. They're to avoid the false circumcision. They're to avoid self-mutilation for the purpose of spiritual gain. And how do they know they're on the right track? Well, he says here, they're the real circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This idea that is they would worship God and they would glory in Him. It's like an a athlete who's won their crown. And what do they always do? If you watched it last night, they handed out a Heisman trophy and they grab the trophy and they hold it up in high regard above them. They're glorying in that, that award and that trophy. And in this sense, the Christian like is to put all their glory in Christ. As we worship in the Spirit, we know that God has has supernaturally placed His Spirit in the heart of every believer. And our worship comes through that Spirit, as that Spirit would then point to Christ and help us elevate Christ in our lives above all things. He is the ultimate reward. Christ is the prize, and knowing Him is the prize. Yeah, how often we we cheapen that reward and that glory in Christ. He's reminding them not to put the confidence in the works of the flesh that He's warning about in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he's reminding them that the real circumcision looks like this. It's those who are spiritually enabled, they're they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and their glory, their prize, their ultimate aim is to know Christ Jesus and His sacrifice for them. To know Him personally is their Lord and Savior. To never forget that. He reminds them in verse 1 that they're to constantly be reminded of this. It is a safe place to hide yourself. And yet, the problem had become for them is that they had started to believe in the works that they were doing more than they had in the sacrifice of Christ. And that's the warning 
there that we get in verse 2, but also in verse 3, the positive of that was put no confidence in the flesh. He's telling them what they're not to do because it had become such a temptation. Now, we had talked about, and Jake has talked about the last several weeks, that maybe we don't struggle in the same ways that the Jews did. That coming out of the old covenant into the new covenant isn't something that we would necessarily struggle with. But yet Paul simplifies this argument for us here in this idea of confidence in the flesh. Let's work through this a little bit more and then we'll tie more of this together. But in verse 4, Paul says, quite frankly, if anybody is going to boast in the things that they've done in the flesh, if anybody has attained a high standard in terms of deeds done in the flesh, it would be me. Paul was no spiritual slouch. In fact, he had enough reason to boast. He says that if, that if anybody thinks they can boast in the things that they've done, it would be me above anyone else. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he is, has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. It's a humble thing to say. Listen to how Paul uses this. Paul says this, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If you remember, Paul didn't grow up in Jerusalem. In fact, he grew up in a Greek-speaking province. Yet he's able to boast uh, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews because he was still schooled in, in what it meant to be a Jew. He was raised as if he was raised in Jerusalem. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law. He was a Jew from birth. He wasn't a convert. He was an Israelite by birth. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, an elite tribe of Israel. He's named after King Saul, the first king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. He was born to Hebrew parents. He spoke Hebrew. He learned the language. He was raised in the culture. And he was trained by top scholars and a son of the Pharisee himself. Paul's spiritual upbringing was that, that if, if he was to go into any Jewish synagogue, he would be immediately recognizable by his training and his understanding of the Jewish customs. Paul wasn't short anywhere in his game. He had it all. He was a complete package. And he was authentic in the sense that he was actually a Jew. He didn't convert to Judaism. He wasn't grafted into the fold. This was a long family history for him. Concerning 
zeal persecuting the church concerning righteousness, blameless. Paul would claim, just like the rich young ruler, that in accordance to the law, he had been found lacking nowhere. He's claiming here that he had fulfilled all of the exterior laws that were required by the Pharisees in the priesthood at the time. Concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. In fact, he, he would claim that he hated those that were outside Judaism so much that he went to hunt them down. He would persecute those who were against the church. He says he hated false religion. We know this to be true. Saul was there. He's confronted by Christ as if persecuting the church. He's there at Stephen's death. If you remember, he's holding the coats as they're stoning Stephen to death. And in all these things, Paul is making the claim here that no one can look to him and say that he had somehow fallen short. And he'd done all these things at the time to merit salvation, to be in a right relationship with God. This was what he thought prior to his conversion. And now he's making a claim to them here that if any of them would look to the confidence in the flesh and the deeds of the flesh, that there would be nobody that could boast in this more than Paul. thinking through how this applies to us, and I was thinking, <clears throat> I think what Paul's bringing up here, something like climbing Mount Everest. Mount Everest sits at just over 29,000 feet. It's the highest peak in the world. Most of us know that. Just over 4,000 people have climbed it, but a lot of people don't know is there are somewhere around 300 dead bodies on Mount Everest. Most of those bodies lie above 26,000 feet. Why is that? Well, man was never meant to venture that high into the clouds. In fact, above 26,000 feet, the air is just about a third of the oxygen level that it is here at sea level. So about where we're at, it's about a third of what we're breathing now. The elements are inhospitable to man. And yet, year after year, men will sacrifice all that they have to obtain the goal of saying that they climbed to the very top, that they made it to the peak of Mount Everest, and they've, they've climbed there, and they've stood, and they've seen the view. And you think, what a prize, what an accomplishment. Well, part of the accomplishment is it only lasts about an hour. Maybe two. If you stay longer than that, the likelihood of you surviving the climb back down is, is dwindling. Why is that? Because it's above 26,000 feet is the death zone. Your body naturally starts to die. It's not getting enough oxygen. It's not getting the proper elements it needs. It's too cold. It's too harsh from environment. And yet as men would spend upwards of $100,000 
is they would spend years training as they would go up and they would spend a month there to acclimatize the best that they can so that they can make it to the peak and come back down. Well, in some ways it's a false peak because even in accomplishing your goal, have you really? You can't stay there. It'll kill you if you stay there. You can climb up just to come back down. And as men climb up and climb down, there's one repeated thing that they notice is all the dead bodies on the way up to the top and on the way down, some 300 that litter the trail of people who have not made the journey. Paul's making a point here and reminding them that man was never meant to find eternal life by sacrificing all he has to do good works. That was never meant to be the aim of salvation, was to see how many good works a man could attribute to himself or how perfect he could be on his own accord. He's saying that even as close as I got, I got to the pinnacle, I got to the peak, I was at the top of the mountain, and yet for me to stay there would have been death. I wouldn't have survived. Although not in the category now, I think that Paul looks back very clearly and saw himself as one of those dogs, as one of those evildoers, as one who simply, simply had mutilated his own flesh on the outside, but inward there was no change until he met Christ. Now he transitions in verse 7. These next few chapters, or verses, excuse me, are going to be the focal point of what we want to learn today. But before we get there, I want to ask you, as you think through the things that you would do in your life, what, what is your aim and your goal in knowing Christ? I think oftentimes we replace that with so many other things. We find so many other ways to sinfully justify ourselves before Him and somehow claim to a right relationship with Him because of things that we've done. Maybe you're naturally obedient. Some of us are more than others. Maybe you're naturally a more loving person. And you see those works as elevating you. Maybe you've read every day this year and stuck to your reading plan. Maybe you've memorized every, every verse that's ever been recommended to you. Maybe you serve without ceasing. You come here constantly, sacrifice of your time that you might serve. Maybe you pray without ceasing. You're a member of the church. You have perfect church attendance. You've made all the meetings. You've never complained. You've been baptized you give a generous offering. You've gone on missions. Not just the ones across town. You like went to another state. Maybe another country. You've gone to Mexico. You've gone to South America. All of these things can be good in service for Christ. But all of these things can also be a stumbling block to us in the deeds that we would do. 
In a sense, we would take those deeds and the same deeds that Paul was talking about, and we would slowly implement those into our faith in Christ that somehow they merit us more. But Paul warns against this in verse 7. He says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. It's an astonishing statement that out of all Paul's life's work, he could find nothing that he would count as profit. Nothing. He doesn't hold on to a couple of little morsels of, well, these things were probably pretty good. It says, whatever gain I'd had, I'd counted as loss. These are accounting terms. These are the plus and negative it's been said in this sense that, that Paul had looked at his bank account, his spiritual bank account, and realized that all of the things that he thought were a credit to his account were actually a debit. Expecting to see a large sum of money in his account and his spiritual works, that when he really reckoned himself to Christ, he looked at the account and just realized the enormous debt that he had amassed. Indeed, he counted everything as loss. And why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And again, in the introduction, we talked about how he's not just talking about knowing Christ as some sort of elemental educational standpoint of I've studied Christ and I know who Christ is. This is a personal relationship and experience of knowing Christ Jesus face to face. Paul's not setting a new list of those things I had done and had no value. So here's the new list of things to do. Here's the new list of spiritual mountains I'm going to climb to increase my favor with Christ. He doesn't say that. What he replaces his idea of working for Christ with is this idea of just knowing Christ. Does that mean he does nothing? No. He says quite clearly that for this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul had sacrificed many things of the old life and in his current life and his current stewardship of the gospel. He'd suffered the loss of many things and counted them as worth being discarded. They were worth losing so that he may know more of Christ. What, what's Paul doing throughout his gospel ministry? Paul's, Paul's increasing in his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's furthering the gospel by knowing Christ more deeply and more intimately. As he would share with other believers throughout all of his epistles and all of his writings, you see his love for the Savior. And all that he does 
It's so that he would personally know Christ more and help those around him know Christ more intimately. In fact, anything that he would have to do away with, any baggage that he would have to get rid of in order that he might serve Christ, he just quite simply says those things were now rubbish to him. If you're like me, I find this a difficult statement to follow because so often the things that I don't want to get rid of in service of Christ cling to me and I to them. Whether it's sleep, whether it's time with family, whether it's just the enjoyment of life, so often I find opportunities to serve and to know Christ more intimately, and yet I'm hesitant to dive into those things. And it's pretty easy to know why I'm hesitant. I don't want to give up the comforts that it would take to get there. I don't count those things as rubbish that Paul counted as rubbish. When we'd first moved here and we were invited to the uh, approved work minute, I found out it was at 6 a.m. Like a.m. I thought maybe it was a typo. I was like, you guys know there's a 6 p.m., which is so much nicer. We're already awake. If we're a little tired, you can bring coffee at that point. Usually a little better. Maybe after a meal, we could hang out together. And I've always found Jake's argument so compelling and encouraging. We meet at 6 a.m. so that we don't hinder ourselves in other areas with our families or our jobs or in other things that we could be doing. So what are we going to sacrifice? He makes it very clear. Sleep. He puts that idol right up there on the altar for you and says, you guys can slay it or not, but that's how you're going to get here. There are still mornings that I wake up and go, by 6, could have done it better than 6 p.m. But the sacrifice has been worth it. And for me personally, it's encouraged me to sacrifice in other areas of my life that I, I previously wouldn't have. You see, in the discomfort, we should find comfort. Knowing that anything that we would be giving up for the purpose of knowing Christ more dearly and more closely, well, those things are worth giving up. We say that we look forward to a future where we have unhindered, unstained access to Christ. And when you think about that statement, it's it's that we have free access to Him. It seems so easy to say, yet right now it seems so far out of reach. We can't just go see Christ, but in prayer and in the Scriptures. He he physically is not going to be face-to-face with us yet. And if we say that we look forward to that time where we would see Him face-to-face for all eternity, well, what are we talking about other than a personal close, intimate, face-to-face relationship with Christ. Paul says that to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of His own, but a righteousness that comes from 
Christ. It's dependent on faith. He says this gift of God comes from Christ. And in that sense, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Spurgeon shared it like this in this desire to know Christ more clearly. He says, imagine that you were centuries ago taken captive and beaten and treated crudely, and you were taken into the arena where men would come excited to find joy to watch you get ripped to shreds as you're tied up, and they would release a lion into the arena. And in no way to defend yourself, Spurgeon says it like this, as the crowd would cheer and the excitement would build, suddenly your Savior would leap from the stands and come down and defeat the lion and send the lion back into its cave and he would come to you and he would untie you and he would whisper you words of comfort and tell you you're free now. You may go, you may go on your way. He says, imagine not knowing who the man was. So the natural reaction would simply be that you would want to know who that Savior was. You would want to find Him. You would want to know everything about Him. You would want to increase in the relationship with Him that previously didn't exist and you didn't know about, yet here He was saving you and send you on your way. And then that night He would go home to sit in the comfort of His own home and be provided a meal. All because the Savior had done a work for him that he couldn't do for himself. And so what's his desire? Not just to reap the benefits of the relationship. His desire isn't just to reap the reward and say, I've got it now and I've got my life and I've got the things that I want and I'm comfortable here. Remember, Paul's writing to believers, people who've been saved, and he's making the argument that his desire is to know the Savior to know the one who provided him this righteousness that's not his own, that comes through faith in Christ, that's dependent on God. He wants to know the power of that resurrection that Christ would be raised from the dead in. And in that means knowing Christ himself. Like so often that it's easy for us when we think about our identity in Christ to simply think about the loss of the penalty. It's easy for us to think about the future reward of eternal life. And yet somewhere in all of that, we tend to forget beyond what he accomplished the Savior himself. When we think about what Christ has done for us, our thoughts should be the person of Christ, wanting to know the love of Christ, that while we were yet His enemies, that Christ would come and die for our sins, that Christ would 
pay a penalty that he himself didn't know. He himself had no obligation to pay. This was our debt. This was our loss. And yet Paul wants to remind us that Christ freely paid that. That's free. That debt is wiped out for all believers. And what a great comfort that is. And that should be grasping our attention. But if we forget the Savior Himself, let's say our relationship is not in a good place. Paul's commitment to knowing Christ and to being with Him in a proper relationship and to knowing Him so intimately He wanted to share not only in the power of His resurrection, but listen to this, it was sharing in His sufferings to become like Him in His death. It's not a small statement by Paul. Remember, Paul had seen in Stephen firsthand what it meant to serve for Christ and give your life up for Christ. He watched Stephen stoning. Not only that, he had acquired legal authority to go persecute believers. This wasn't a flippant statement of, and I'll share in the sufferings with Christ. Yes, I can do that. We do see that in the Gospels. We see that when Jesus asked the brothers, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Yeah, we sure can. Because they wanted to sit at his left and right side. Paul's not making that statement here. This is a calculated understanding statement of what it means to be persecuted, to share in his sufferings. He knew what those sufferings were. In fact, he'd experienced so many. Paul had lived a lavish lifestyle. He was treated well. He grew up in all the, all the who's who. He had the name recognition. In fact, Paul was such a hated enemy after his conversion because of who he previously was. And he understood those things. He understood his end that was to come. And yet his desire is to be associated with Christ and to know him more dearly. I've repeated that over and over throughout this, and part of it is when we read through this passage, it's, it's so easy, it stands out to us, that we're to put no confidence in the flesh. We're not to trust in the things that we've done, we're to trust in Christ and the work that He has done. But oftentimes, because we can be a bit self-serving in how we would interpret Scripture. We, we read the good news for us, and then it's easy to skip over Paul's desire to, to have this relationship with Christ. It's easy to look at Paul's words and just say, well, Paul just wanted to know Christ as his Savior. But the language here is so intimate. 
as we come into Christmas season, we would celebrate the birth of Christ. Oftentimes, our focus is on the birth of the Savior, and it is important to focus on Him as the birth of the Savior. That is a very important thing to uh, be reminded of every year. But what I want to challenge you with this holiday season is you would consider the birth of Christ, that you would consider the person of Christ, and your personal relationship with Him. As you would set your goals, as you would think about this last year and what you did with your time and your talent, and what you would set as a goal for next year, that you would consider how those things would increase your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just your knowledge of Him. You can gain knowledge and not be passionate. We've all done that. A lot of us do it at work all the time. You want me to memorize that? I'll memorize everything you tell me to memorize. And it lacks a passion and a personal investment. We're going to sing a few songs as we close. One of them all I have is Christ. And as I was thinking of another familiar hymn, the words, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I just think this passage has been such a sweet reminder to me of what it means to know Christ. I pray it would be an encouragement to you as we'd enter this season. Let's pray. God in heaven, we have always been unworthy to come before you. Yet from eternity past, you saw it fit to come seek us out. You saw it fit in your love for us that you lavish your grace upon us. It would be grace upon grace. Lord, that as our sin had separated us from you personally, it was an affront to you personally that you would send Christ, that you come die for our sins, that we could be in a right relationship with him. And in that relationship, we could know him intimately. We can know his love and his grace and his mercy. <clears throat> Yet in all that, that he would care for us still to discipline us. That he would raise us up in the truth, that you would provide your spirit to keep us in the promise. And yet beyond that, Lord, we know the work didn't end there, that he's been learning that Christ would be our high priest. They would intercede for us daily. We can go before him daily with our prayers and our cares, Lord. With everything that we can cast all our burdens on you and that you will give us a peace and a joy that is unexpressible. And it's not dependent on the current circumstances we find ourselves in, Lord. Our joy is dependent on the person of Christ who is never changing. Lord, for those here that know Christ, help us to cling to him more closely. Help us to see those areas in our life where we have separated ourselves from Christ. 
and make him the focal point of all that we would do. Help us to desire that relationship in our hearts. Help us to bring us near to you, to encourage one another in the love of Christ, that through each other we would even see the love of Christ. May that be a manifestation in this church. We pray, Lord, for those who don't know you. God, what a terrible position it's in. Man was never meant or capable of meriting his own salvation. You've told us that clearly. We're not capable of paying that debt. And we're not capable of living in such a way that would be worthy of eternity with you. It would be worthy of praise. We're all in need of the Savior, Lord, and I pray for those who don't know you that they would understand that today. That they would see this as more than just paying for their sins. It's entering in a right relationship with the God of the universe. It's entering in a right relationship with Christ. Lord, we thank you so much that we can come before you freely. We pray today that you would hear our prayers and our songs as we would leave. In Jesus' name we pray.